Hey, this is Cody Turner. You're going to want to buckle your seatbelts for this one, kids. In this episode, I speak with Professor William Lichen. Professor Lichen is extremely well known in the philosophical community. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he's one of the more famous contemporary philosophers alive today. I'm certainly not going to do justice to his career in this introduction, but he has written eight books, I believe. He's the author of over 170 published articles. He's made groundbreaking contributions in the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of language, the philosophy of linguistics, epistemology, metaphysics, and he's Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he spent a lot of his career. And he's currently Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. In this episode, Professor Lakin and I discuss consciousness. The episode essentially serves as an introduction to the philosophy of consciousness for people who are completely unacquainted with the relevant literature. Um, we start by defining consciousness, we talk about the hard problem of consciousness, and then we slowly hone in on Professor Lichen's particular views about consciousness. It was a fascinating conversation, and I learned a lot, and I greatly appreciate Bill taking the time to have this conversation with me. So, without further preamble, I present to you, Professor William Lichen. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I will have given you a proper introduction in the preamble. Um, anyone who knows philosophy, I'm sure, knows who you are. Um, I thought we could just start... Before we get into consciousness and your views on consciousness, I thought we could start by with a simple question. How did you get into philosophy? Oh, you may have told me before. Yeah, I got into philosophy, this is so long ago, this is like 50 or 55 years ago. I got into philosophy basically through linguistics. Hmm. Um, when I was an undergraduate, there weren't really linguistics departments. This was before the great development of theoretical linguistics due to... Chomsky. Harris and Chomsky, and um, uh, I was interested, I was a math major, and I was interested in um, formal treatments of language, and a lot of that was beginning to go on in philosophy departments. I went off to the University of Chicago, um, although I got uh, seduced by the philosophical problems and got less interested in technical um, methods in linguistics, and then I just got to thinking more about the philosophy of language and mind than about the technicalities of language and mind. That's so that. It started with philosophy of language and mind. Yeah. What did you write your undergraduate dissertation on? Oh, I wrote it on this guy Chomsky that um, hardly anyone had heard of then. This was before the publication of Aspects. Uh, was, that it, was that his first major work? Uh, yeah, his first work was Syntactic Structures, which was published by a very small press in Holland. And uh, thanks to a librarian at Amherst College, I got a copy of Syntactic Structures, and I read it, and I thought, wow. And I wrote a whole BA thesis on it. Mm. Um, um, who are, okay. I guess, no, well, let's just jump right into consciousness. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like I said, I, my, my plan here is to 
start from the beginning and then hone in on your hop theory. Yep. So first, as you know, consciousness, many philosophers use the word in many different ways and there are many different senses of consciousness. So I want to assume that the people who are listening to this, which aren't that many, know nothing about the subject. So mm -hmm. we, it, this can perhaps act as a kind of introduction. So I thought we could start just by distinguishing between different senses of consciousness. So there's, yeah. there's creature consciousness. That'll bore everybody nearly to death, but you have to do it. You have to. <laughs> because the word really does have a lot of different uses, or, or at least there are a number of quite different phenomena that are referred to under that word. Yeah. And I, I think we're probably going to focus on state consciousness and phenomenal consciousness, yeah, but okay. just so we know exactly what we're talking about. So first, what's the distinction between creature consciousness and state consciousness? Oh. Well, uh, what's called creature conscious consciousness is just a, a property of a being, an organism or a creature. Is it a conscious being or not? Mm -hmm. um, which is to say, uh, could say either two things, a um, uh, the low level sort of thing to say, <laughs> Uh, is well, uh, you know, if it has uh, perception of the world around it and uh, uh, selective responses to the world around it, and it has what they call a normal waking state, if there's a difference between its being awake and, and asleep, mm -hmm. um, then that kind of uh, creature we call a conscious creature. <coughs> And also, the normal waking state is usually uh, uh, described as uh, conscious. If you say that somebody is unconscious, as in, is the patient conscious yet? Usually you're talking about... You're just talking awake? about the normal waking state. Are you perceiving the world? Are you responding appropriately to it? And so on. That's not what philosophers care about, as you well know, Cody. Mm -hmm. And then state consciousness is just is a mental state conscious. Now you're not talking yeah. about the creature holistically, you're talking about particular mental states and whether they can be conscious yeah. or not. And yeah. it seems like a distinction can be drawn between conscious mental states on the one hand and unconscious mental states on the other. Absolutely. There, uh, although that's a new, uh, uh, comparatively new phenomenon. It started right. with Freud. And okay. then uh, much, much later, well, 40... 50 years later, it started with, it restarted with um, cognitive science. Because, well, in Descartes' time, the mental was the conscious and the conscious was the mental. Period. That's what I was going to ask. So prior to Freud, everyone just assumed that yes. a mental state is by definition conscious. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, uh, Freud's idea that there were unconscious desires, unconscious beliefs, unconscious motivations, and all that stuff was. Uh, conceptually shocking. People said, what? What are you talking about? Um, but Freud, <laughs> without, uh, yeah, without having to be a, a complete Freudian or without uh, believing more than a quarter of what Freud said, uh, he had enough evidence mm -hmm. that some of people's behavior could only be explained by unconscious motivation. Mm-hmm. A motivation of which they weren't aware. Mm. And that idea, of course, has now become commonplace. I didn't, yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize he was the originator of that notion. Yeah, I mean, of course, Freud, like any other great thinker, didn't do it all himself. Other people had had yeah. related ideas and so on. 
But uh, then along comes cognitive science, and uh, cognitive science shows you that there's all this psychological processing that has uh, um, dramatic effects on your behavior of which you're completely unaware because it's being carried out by sub-agencies in your brain, all kinds of computations, all kinds of noticing things, all kinds of registering things that the whole person is not aware of doing at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, the proof of that is that there are uh, great ranges of behavior that can be explained only by reference uh, to that completely um, subconscious, non-conscious uh, psychological activity carried out by agencies of the brain. What's one example of behavior of that kind? Oh, well, the, the classic example is blind sight. Right. Where you, you have um, uh, a patient who is missing a lot of visual cortex and claims to be blind. So at least blind in, let's say, half their visual field. They can't see anything to their left, they say. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody, was it Roger Sperry? I forget who. Um, somebody decided to test this in a way. And so they would give the, they would demobilize these patients' heads, and then they would give um, the patient a simple stimulus in their blind field. Mm. And um, like, for example, they would hold up a, a, a rod or a stick and they would hold it either horizontally or vertically, or they would show some simple, very simple array of dots or something like that. And they would ask the patient, um, is what I'm holding uh, vertical or is it horizontal? And the patient would say, I have no idea. I can't see it. Uh, I'm blind. <laughs> I'm blind. Um, and they'd say, guess. Mm -hmm. Forced guess. And the patient would say, all right, vertical. And the patients were doing much better than chance. Right. This showed, of course, not that they were fully seeing in the sense in which you or I see, but... Um, they were doing some kind of proto-seeing of which they were completely unaware. Now, sometimes when we have mental states of which we're unaware, it's just because we don't notice them. Mm -hmm. It's just because we're not attending to them. Right, our focus, the, yeah. the spotlight of focus isn't directed on it. Yeah, happens all the time, happens to everybody. That's just common sense. But these blindside people, it wasn't just attention. They had a real deficit mm -hmm. in their brain. And uh, uh, they could not become aware right. of what they were seeing. Right. Um, they weren't seeing it very well. I mean, they couldn't give you any kind of detail. And the weird thing was, uh, of course, that they thought they were guessing. They weren't aware of seeing anything. They thought it was a complete conjecture yes. without knowing that they were reliably getting the correct answer. Exactly. Well, this phenomenon of blindsight is perfect because it introduces the distinction between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Absolutely. Right? So when you're talking about whether a mental state's conscious, going back to state consciousness, there are different ways to cash that out. And this notion, which, as we were talking about, originates from Ned Block. Mm -hmm. To be access conscious, if you're access conscious of something, it's available for use and reasoning and for the direct control of your behavior. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're phenomenally conscious, 
to be phenomenally conscious is for there to be something it's like to be you from the subjective point of view. Mm-hmm. To, something like for, uh, something it's like for it to be you having that experience. Having that experience, right. 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 Um, so in the case of blindsight, one way to kind of go about conceptualizing that case, as I understand it, is to say that the blindsight patients are access conscious of the rod or whatnot, but they're not phenomenally conscious of it. I'm not sure that's a perfect example because I, I'm not up on the definition. Um, it may not be that a blindsider uh, counts as access conscious because the blindsider herself or himself can't freely make use of that information. Mm-hmm. It's not globally broadcast. Right. It's hidden even from them. Yeah. They have it. I was reading. But they don't know that they have it, and they can't use it. Now, I'm not. I'm not absolutely sure of that. I would have to look up the definition of access conscious. Uh-huh. But it is certainly true that the blindsider is not phenomenally conscious of anything. Yeah. In yeah, the was, blind field. I was reading someone, it might have been Kriegel, who was making the case that blindsiders are access conscious, but I see your oh, point. Uh, yeah. Maybe they are. It would depend on the definition. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Block is right. There are all kinds of things that are uh, uh, available to use. Um, we are uh, perhaps aware that we're in a certain mental state and so on, but where there is no phenomenal what it's likeness to it. Mm-hmm. That Subjective introspectable, character. qualitative, phenomenal character. Qualia. Yeah. <laughs> well, an- another example, perhaps, that gets at the distinction between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness is this phenomenon of absent-minded driving. Yeah. Where you're going home from work and you realize that you've just been kind of thinking in your own head and you haven't even really been attending to the road, but somehow you've you haven't veered off, you haven't gotten into an accident, you've been following the speed limit, and you haven't even been paying attention. So it seems like... You stopped at the stop sign. Right, you stopped at the stop sign, but you didn't even really see it. And if someone no. asked you, uh, was there a stop sign just now, you couldn't even necessarily report upon it. So it's, one way... It's not that you didn't see it, you certainly did see it, or you wouldn't have stopped at it. It's that you were not aware of seeing it. Right, exactly. So, so there's another case of a mental state that you were demonstrably in, but you were completely unaware of being in it. Yeah, yeah. Because your attention was elsewhere. You were daydreaming. You were thinking about your date tonight, or you were thinking about something. Yeah. Um, and your activity was so automatic, if you're a professional truck driver, for example, that right. you don't need to be aware of your own mental states. Right. So to do that. So one way to interpret that, right, would be to say that the driver is phenomenally conscious of the stop sign, but they're not access conscious of it. I wouldn't have said that the driver was phenomenally conscious of it, at least really? the way I use the term. And I think now I, I would give this argument that you may want to dispute it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm inclined to think that if there is something it's like for you to be having a certain experience, to be in a certain mental state, um, you have to be aware of being in that state. Right. I think there are people who would dispute that. Well, I think I think Bloch disputes it. He has this oh. notion of phenomenological overflow where uh-huh. consciousness can outstrip attention or it can outstrip access consciousness. Uh-huh. So I think he would take that line. Mm-hmm. But... 
Right, but for you. Certainly in a paradigm case, um, if uh, of there being something it's like for the person, from the person's first person point of view, to be in mental state M, um, surely they would be aware of mental state M. There may be exceptions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, before we go any farther, I just want to back up and introduce the hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that consciousness, unlike other naturalistic phenomenon, doesn't lend itself to a scientific treatment, right? So there seems to be this special hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, David Chalmers makes this distinction between what he calls the easy problems of consciousness and the hard problems. Um, the easy problems have to do with uh, examples of easy problems might be how does a subject discriminate information in its environment? Uh, how do you go about, uh, how is a subject able to reliably report upon things that it's perceiving? And he says the easy problems are, they're not, e they're certainly not easy to solve. Uh, neuroscience hasn't made a lot of headway in a lot of the easy problems, but they're easy in the sense that they seem to fall within the scope of the mythology of the brain and natural sciences. Mm -hmm. So with respect to the easy problems, it's just a matter of finding a neural mechanism in the brain mm -hmm. and explaining that. But with the hard problem of consciousness, that's the question of why is there so, and it has to do with phenomenal consciousness, mm -hmm. right? And the question is, why is there something it's like for the brain to, to be a brain at all? So it seems like and that doesn't seem, it seems like answering that question isn't just a matter of specifying neural mechanisms in the brain. We could have a complete physical understanding of how the brain works and still ask, why don't all of those neural processes just take place in the dark? Why is there experience mm -hmm. associated with this? And it seems like, uh, any f it seems like that's just a, f a mystery, even given complete knowledge of the physical states of the brain. Mm -hmm. So... Some people have suggested that the hard problem of consciousness uh, indicates dualism, indicates that physicalism isn't true. Some people deny that there's a hard problem of consciousness, like the Churchlands. They don't even really see that there is a hard problem. <laughs> so I think that's enough setup. Okay. What's, what's your basic uh, perspective? One of the, uh, I think, a perfect example of something that Chalmers would call an easy problem, even though it isn't easy at all right. scientifically, is the uh, extraordinary progress they've made on understanding how the visual system works, um, especially color vision. Mm. Um, they know an enormous amount. Uh, it's extra, uh, the visual system is uh, amazingly well understood, and getting that understanding wasn't easy at all. It took all kinds of very fancy experimentation and, and whatnot. Um, vision is much better understood than any other sense modality, but uh, they understand why certain objects look the colors they do to us under these or that conditions. They understand all kinds of stuff like that. There was nothing easy about that, but by the Chalmers uh, standard, that's easy. That's it. The philosophers, we're solving the hard problem. Yeah. You guys take care of the easy stuff. Yeah. We'll work on the hard stuff. Yeah. And, and as you put it, um, um, well, here's a, here's a good way to make the contrast. Um, suppose um, 
uh, a um, an object that is in fact yellow looks an odd color under peculiar conditions. It looks blue. Mm -hmm. So I look at this object, which is in fact yellow, and I'm having a blue experience because of something funny about the light or about the atmosphere or something like that. And um, uh, you, you as the experimenter say, uh, how, how does this, what color does this look to you? Uh, I say, it looks blue. Um, now, maybe I'm hip to the experiment and maybe uh, you, you say, well, you do know that this is yellow, don't you? I say, yeah, I know that, but it, it doesn't look yellow, it looks blue. Mm -hmm. So, uh, vision science can explain and does explain why this yellow object looks blue to me under these unusual conditions. But now, um, suppose you ask a different question and people have to understand that this is a different question. It's not the same question. You say, well, okay, so uh, you are now having a blue visual experience or a visual experience as of blue or however you want to describe that. Your visual experience presents blueness, not yellowness and so on and so forth. I say, yes, 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 yes. Um, and you say, so you're experiencing a blue color in your visual field. I say, yes, yes, we've established that, haven't we? Um, and, but now you say, what is it like for you in your mind to experience that blueness? Huh? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like something. It's not like being dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is like something. Uh, it is certainly like something. It's a characteristic um, uh, property of experience. Isn't it fundamentally ineffable? Because any language that you use to describe it, yeah. it just sounds. Well, I think it is. You can, you can, uh, you could describe it comparatively. Right. I could say, well, it's kind of like looking at this other thing, or if I'm really creative, I might say. It's kind of like, this sounds weird, but it's kind of like smelling pineapple. <laughs> well, no, but uh, I don't mean comparatively, says you. I'm asking, what's it like to experience that blueness um, in itself? Mm. Not, Compared uh, to not you know, like there doesn't mean what does it resemble. Right. Um, it means what's it feel like? And... Uh, I say, well, I mean, there is definitely something that it feels like. It feels like uh, this. I mean, I, yeah. Blue. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I can't put it into words. Um, it is, if you like, ineffable, meaning you can't put it into words. It's nothing you can say in English, even if you were very articulate. But I know what it's like because I'm experiencing it. Yeah. There is something it's like for me to experience that blueness. Uh, again, comparatively, it's like what I experience when I see an object that is really blue uh, in good light under normal uh, conditions. It's like that. But that doesn't help you because you want to know, well, what's that like for yeah, you to experience? Yeah, the same question. Yeah, um, the comparative answer doesn't help. You want to know what's it like in itself. Uh, well, I know what it's like, but I, I can't tell you. I mean, I, I can arrange to give you the experience so that you'll find out what it's like too 
And I'll, I have to assume that what it's like for you is pretty much what it's like for me because we have similar brains and everything. But yeah, uh, I go tongue-tied. And the, and the problem is that any physical explanation that you give of that what it's likeness, which is based on brain states, doesn't really seem to be an explanation. We've found correlations between particular conscious percepts mm -hmm. and states in the brain, but we haven't really found explanations yet. We haven't explained it in terms of the brain, that's and that's the hard problem. That's right. That's exactly it. Well put. Because um, what is a brain explanation uh, going to sound like? Well, here are all these neurons, and they have synapses, and they're connected to each other, and there's a lot of electrochemical activity, see? And uh, uh, we have electrochemical firings and we have all this so on and so on and so on and uh, I can go on about that and properties in the brain and activity in the brain um, for the rest of my life and none of that explains why my experience of blue feels like this to me. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So, and so as you were saying yeah. uh, uh, it sounds as though we just have a different fact there. It sounds as though we have come to a phenomenon that is perfectly real, uh, uh, but that science cannot in principle explain. And that's what drives some people to uh, mind-body dualism, to think that uh, mental experiences have to be something over and above the brain and anything else that physical science describes. But you don't go that way with respect to the hard problem, you consider yourself a physicalist. Physicalism yes. just being the basic position that consciousness is a part of the physical world. It's not something over and above the physical world like the dualist claims. Yes. And you know, there are different, we don't, we're not gonna get too far into dualism, I don't think, in this conversation, but there are different kinds of dualism. There's substance dualism, the idea that the mind is this immaterial substance kind of riding around in the body, mm -hmm. and property dualism, the idea that there is only one substance, physical substance, but there are, uh, irreducibly mental properties mm -hmm. and well I was actually just reading the paper that you wrote the other day in which you compare and contrast property dualism and substance dualism uh, I'm gonna say let's not go down that path for now mm -hmm. I guess why so you have some sympathy towards the hard problem but like you just said you mm -hmm. don't conclude dualism from that why are right. you a physicalist in a few words despite the fact that you're sympathetic with the hard problem oh why am I a physicalist at all? Why are you phys yeah. Well, uh, I don't think there are any really compelling arguments for physicalism or materialism. Uh, that, I mean, people have occasionally tried to give them. Um, I think, in my own case, it's the idea that... Uh, <clears throat> Nature, the, the physical world, is a closed causal order. Now that's a bit of an article of faith. That's something that has to be shown. Uh, I think it has been pretty well held up by the progress of science over 2,000 years. Um, it's not absolutely a given, but it is something I believe and it's something that most uh, uh, physical scientists take for granted, at least as a methodological assumption. Now, if that's so, and if, for example, 
you can explain all of human behavior, or you could in principle explain all of human behavior in terms of the neurological goings-on that connect your perceptual inputs to your behavioral outputs. Um, if you think that a complete explanation could be given in physical, chemical, biological terms, if we knew enough about the details of the innards, which we don't and never will, um, then Occam's razor comes along and makes us want to say, um, why would we need uh, to suppose that there are interlopers? Why would we need to suppose that there is anything going on in the natural physical world, which includes us, our human bodies, um, that defies science? It looks like um, everything is explicable in terms of our nervous systems. That's not and should not be a dogma, but if you are a scientifically minded uh, person, you think that's a very good bet. And there is no reason, at least yet, to suppose that there are any kinds of occult or immaterial properties or forces that um, alter the course of nature that is as described by physics, chemistry, and biology. Now, of course, as you well know, uh, uh, there are well-honed arguments that are designed to show precisely that. Right. Um, but I'm taking it, and I continue to take it, and I always will take it as a default that um, everything uh, psychological about us and everything mental about us can be explained and described in naturalistic terms. I'll just wait to hear arguments to the contrary and see if any of them are ever good. Of course, to cut to the chase is, and as you well know, I don't think any of them are any good. Yeah. They're, they're not stupid. I mean, some of them yeah. are uh, uh, fairly powerful sounding arguments. But they all have things wrong with them. Yeah, well, let's let's briefly go over the zombie argument. So I guess mm -hmm. my, which is an argument for dualism. But I guess, I mean, you know my basic stance. I'm sympathetic to panpsychism. My basic mm -hmm. response to what you just said is... Better tell people what panpsychism is. <laughs> panpsychism is the idea that uh, consciousness permeates the fundamental level of the universe. So consciousness kind of constitutes the intrinsic nature of the universe. So unlike... Or anyway, part of it. Or anyway, part of it, yeah. There are all kinds of different kinds of panpsychism, but just to contrast it with dualism and physicalism, the two positions we've been talking about, panpsychism, like dualism, states that phenomenal consciousness is irreducible to physical matter as we understand it. But unlike dualism, it doesn't say that consciousness is over and above the physical world. Rather, it says that consciousness is a part of the physical world. Mm -hmm. And I'm attracted to panpsychism because I see it as retaining some of the advantages of both physicalism and dualism while avoiding their respective weaknesses. Yeah, and the physical world on that view isn't all physical. It isn't purely physical. It isn't physical all the way down and nothing but. Right, exactly. Yeah. And this is why 
and this is kind of the, the line of thought that Galen Strawson pursues, yes. who's a, a, a <clears throat> another famous contemporary philosopher who I like a lot. But he says, you know, to think that uh, consciousness can't be reduced to the physical world is to assume that we know more about the physical world than we actually do. Mm. So he says that we just don't know what physical matter is. Maybe physical matter is fundamentally conscious. So the idea that consciousness can't be reduced to physical matter is based upon our limited understanding of physics mm. as we take it. Yeah. Here's kind of a fun way of thinking of panpsychism. Since you mentioned Galen Strawson, this is a, uh, uh, a favorite uh, gambit of his. Um, a panpsychist, at least of Galen's sort, can say, look, I'm telling you, the human mind is nothing but the brain. There is nothing in a human mind that is over and above the brain. Minds are just brains, got me? But the panpsychist said, of course, brains aren't just physical. Um, <laughs> There couldn't be brains without little underlying mental characteristics. Some qualia buzzing around in there. That's right. <laughs> so. so, yeah. So, uh, okay. Going back to the zombie, we're we're opening up so many doors. Uh, yeah. I don't want to open up too many. Right. Going back to the z zombie argument. So yeah, I guess my basic rejoinder to your explanation as to why you're a physicalist is. Um, I see there, you know, the scientists used to, there used to be a problem of life, right? Mm -hmm. Where there are these people called vitalists who thought science will never be able to explain living things, right. things that move and exhibit behavior. There has to be some, some vital spirit that's injected into something to transform dull matter into a living being. Yeah. But if there were no vital spirit, uh, no entelechies and... Uh, Right. Vital, vital fluid, then nothing would be alive. Everything would just be a mechanical, dull, stupid physical matter. Which, of course, was a mistaken assumption. As the science progressed, we now have a complete scientific understanding of life. And exactly. some people who are physicalists think that the same thing is true of consciousness nowadays. There are all these intellectuals who think that there's this hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But as science progresses, we'll, under we'll arrive at a complete scientific understanding of consciousness just like we did of life. Yeah. I, as you know, think both things. I think the problem is hard. Right. You think uh, the problem is hard. I agree about yeah, yeah. The, the hard, that there is a hard problem of phenomenal consciousness. Right. I also think that, well, no, I, I don't think that the march of science will automatically solve it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because by definition, part of the hard problem is that you don't see how any scientific development would affect it. Right. That's that's what makes it hard, as opposed to all the other trivial, easy things mm -hmm. like explaining life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, um, so, yeah, um, uh, science alone is not going to solve the hard problem. Even the way it solved the problem of uh, explaining life and how life, living organisms are, are possible, it takes philosophical interpretation to do that. And I'm glad to be able to say that because it means we're earning our salaries here. <laughs> There's something that science alone can't do, something important for us to understand. Right. And that's an important distinction because there are some philosophers, as I mentioned, that actually just deny, deny that there's a hard problem. That's right. Like, 
Dennett, I guess, would Dennett, fall in that camp. Uh, Churchland, uh, Paul Churchland, Pat Churchland. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I guess you know. I just think that when it comes to consciousness, it's not just a matter of explaining behavior and functions like it is with respect to life. Mm-hmm. So there's a disanalogy between those two. But then, of course, you one can just accuse me of begging the question. Oh, you think there's this intrinsic property that's not defined in terms of functionality? Well, to give you an example. Um, Suppose uh, I'm sitting here saying, well, you know, there's something it's like for me to be experiencing this blue. Um, And that's something to which I am privy through introspection. I'm looking into my own mind and I'm seeing it there and I can't express it to you. Um, And I don't see how it could be just a matter of some kind of electrochemical activity going on among molecule. I don't see that. And suppose you, if you were Dennett or a a Churchland, uh, said, uh, look, I can take care of that. The thing we need to explain is why you go around saying things like, oh, I'm having this experience and uh, I'm finding it ineffable. Well, of course, science can explain why my mouth moves like that. Right. So we don't need to explain consciousness. We need to explain why our reports as to why consciousness is mysterious. Yeah. Once we explain that, the mystery is solved. Yeah. Uh, if, as some people might have it, um, the only scientific task were to explain why I say things like that, yeah, sure. Um, this is, uh, science could. We're talking about uh, um, a kind of finally developed science that's privy to all kinds of detailed information <clears throat> that science never will be privy to, but that's okay. We're yeah. Talking about an ideal science. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course science can explain why I say certain things, but that's not what needs explaining. What needs explaining is why the things I'm saying are true. Yeah. And the anti-hard problem people you mentioned, Dennett, Paul Churchland, Pat Churchland, thinks they're not true. Right. Uh, all that needs explaining is why we say that they're true. I've never found that convincing. No, I haven't either. I think they are true. Yeah. There is something it's like for me to have that blue experience. Yeah. Let me qu- quickly prop up the zombie argument because I think that'll be helpful in terms of distinguishing people, physicalists like you, from physicalists like Dennett. So there's this zombie argument, which it's kind of just taking the hard problem of consciousness and turning it into an argument almost. Yeah. But the idea is that. Uh, premise one, philosophical zombies are possible, um, or sorry, are conceivable. What's a philosophical zombie? A philosophical zombie is a being that's physically and functionally identical to you or me, behaves like me. So if you came into contact with a philosophical zombie, they would, say, they, they would tell you that they're conscious uh, and they would seem completely normal. But, and here's the kick, there's nothing it's like to be a philosophical zombie. Zombies aren't conscious, despite being completely physically identical. Premise one is just that these beings are conceivable. You can conceive of something. They're flawless human simulators. Yeah, yeah. Um, They they look and act and do everything exactly as we do, and they're even built like us inside. But by hypothesis, what we're imagining is a thing that really is just a mechanism. Right. It does not have any phenomenal experience inside it, unlike us who do. Right. The, the lights aren't on, yeah. as, as, as it were. So to speak. No one's home. <laughs> right. No one's home. Yeah. Uh, premise two is if, if zombies are conceivable, then they're possible. And the, the justification for that premise is just the idea that conceivability entails possibility. 
Why think that conceivability entails possibility? Mm, well, a basic answer would be, it seems like conceivabilities are greatest guide to possibility. There are, unicorns aren't actual beings, but we think they're possible because they're conceivable. Vice versa, squared circles are also not actual beings, but we think they're impossible because they're not conceivable. So we typically in day-to-day -day life use conceivability as a guide to possibility. So if zombies are conceivable, they're possible. Then if they're possible, the conclusion is that uh, physicalism is not true because physicalism states that there is a necessary connection between uh, consciousness and the physical world. So philosophers like to talk about this in terms of possible worlds. So to say that there's a necessary connection between two things is to say that it exists in all possible worlds. So if physicalism is true, then in, any, in every possible world where there's a being that's physically identical to me, that being is necessarily conscious. But we've just said that there's a possible world, but that's not the case, which means physicalism is false. That might have been kind of a long-winded way of explaining it, but that's the basic argument. Yeah. And, uh, right, my understanding, going back to Dennett, my understanding is that people like Dennett will just deny the first premise. They'll deny that philosophical zombies are conceivable, mm -hmm. but you're not gonna go that way. So what's, what do you find wrong with that argument? No, I, I take the much easier way. As you know, I deny the move from conceivability to possibility. Um, anything's conceivable. I mean, take any scientific identity, that is to say, a, an identity of uh, properties or natures that has been discovered by science. I can imagine um, that that's false. I can uh, say without contradicting myself that it's false. Just take the classical example of uh, the discovery that lightning in the sky, I'm not talking about anybody's experience of lightning, just the big flash boom thing that actually happens in nature that we can sometimes perceive. Right. Um, and they found out, I think sometime in the 18th century, that what actually is going on there is a gigantic electrical discharge. So that a bolt of lightning is essentially a gigantic spark. And uh, so we can summarize this discovery by saying, look, what lightning is, is just a big electrical discharge in the sky. Now, uh, it remains conceivable, perfectly conceivable, imaginable, and without contradiction, there's nothing at all wrong with the <coughs> supposition that, well, no, actually, that's wrong. Lightning uh, is uh, some other kind of thing entirely. And conversely, we could have a great big electrical discharge in the sky that wouldn't be lightning. Now, we know that can't actually happen because we know that, scientifically speaking, lightning just is a big electrical discharge in the sky. Um, but it's still perfectly conceivable, even though it's not possible. And that's my model for um, um, phenomenal consciousness and all that brain activity. Sure, it's conceivable that somebody could have all that very same brain activity and not be conscious at all. Anything's conceivable. That doesn't show that it's possible, scientifically possible, metaphysically possible. Right. Okay. So that's so. I guess let's now let's hone in on your hop theory. I feel like we've set up the relevant landscape sufficiently enough. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, yeah. I mean, so just a quick recap here. 
we've introduced different uh, definitions of consciousness. We've talked about the hard problem of consciousness, which addresses phenomenal consciousness, the idea that there's something it's like. And we've distinguished between some different metaphysical views of consciousness, like physicalism, dualism, panpsychism. Um, and there's, of course, there are different kinds of physicalism. There's the kinds of physicalism, like for, we've already introduced one distinction, the Dennett kind of physicalism and the Lycan, Lycanian physicalism. But another uh, basic distinction between physicalist views are type identity theories versus representationalist theories. Is that a fair distinction? And representationalists, so I guess what's the basic uh, distinction between representationalist theories of consciousness and type identity theories? Well, um, hold on now. Which type of consciousness are we talking about again? Are we still talking about phenomenal consciousness? Yeah. Oh. Um, All right, well, okay. state consciousness as well, I guess. Oh, now let's re remind us what, uh, remind everybody what state consciousness is as the term is used. I think the term comes from David Rosenthal. Um, yeah. When we talk about state consciousness, uh, and we're talking about a mental state being a conscious state, in this particular sense, there are a lot of different ways in which that phrase could be used. But in the sense we're talking about now, a conscious state is uh, a mental state one is more or less directly aware of being in from the inside. And as we were talking about when we began, some mental states are conscious in that sense. We're aware of being in them. Others are not. Freudian unconscious motivations, uh, uh, weird stuff going on in our um, language module, um, actually seeing the stop sign without being aware that one is and so on. So there's a difference between mental states that we're aware of being in, the conscious states, and mental states that we're not. Right. Okay. So we're talking about state consciousness. Yes. And but so just to be clear, phenomenal consciousness is a species of state consciousness. That's I think I, so. Okay. Because um, that's how I'm conceptualizing things. You, uh, that's the way I conceptualize them too. Um, you mentioned before that... Um, Ned Block and maybe other people think that there can be phenomenal consciousness without state consciousness. Yeah. I don't see that myself, but uh, that's right. another issue that we could debate sometime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I too assume that phenomenal consciousness presupposes state consciousness. Right. Oh, okay. Now, yeah, I see how that relates back to what we were talking Subject about. Subject to controversy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Right, so representationalist theories of consciousness are attempting to reduce state consciousness to mental representations yes. rather than directly to neural That's or right. physical states. That's right. And my understanding here is one of the basic motivations, well, I guess more specifically you could say representationalist theories of consciousness are attempting to explain consciousness in terms of intentionality. And then they also assume that intentionality can be explained in terms of mental representations. So I just threw out some new jargon there. That's right. Intentionality. What is intentionality? It's another prominent feature of our mental life that philosophers discuss. Something is intentionality is the aboutness of that mental states exhibit. So I'm looking right now at the door and the, my mental state seems to be about something. It seems to be directed towards the door. Um, it's an experience of the door. It's an experience of the door, right? What you're seeing is the door. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so there's this question, what's, uh, there's intentionality and then there's phenomenal consciousness, the what it's likeness uh, or state consciousness. What's the relationship between the two? And uh, people who are physicalists want to give a naturalistic explanation of consciousness. And it seems like intentionality might lend itself to a naturalistic explanation more so than consciousness. So maybe we can explain consciousness in terms of intentionality. And the idea is that intentionalities can be understood in terms of mental representations, and then mental representations can in turn be understood in terms of neural states or right. something like that. So that's kind of how the naturalistic yeah. explanation proceeds. Cognitive scientists talk about representation all the time. That's what makes them cognitive scientists, and they don't seem to think that that's appeal to spook stuff or uh, yeah. anything really weird. So what is this notion of mental representation? Could you prop that up? Well, um, we talk about, uh, I mean, in, in COGSI, we talk about uh, mental representation all the time. We talk about uh, uh, the visual system computing things like edges and line gradients and texture gradients and whatnot. Um, to say that something is computing something is already representational talk. As if I compute something on my legal pad, um, the squiggles I'm making on, on my legal pad are referring to something that I'm computing about. There's that about word again. A representation is something that represents something outside itself. Mm -hmm. So. Cognitive science is up to its neck in mental representations. That's what makes it cognitive science. And uh, uh, so at least the scientists themselves don't think there's any great mystery or hard problem about mental representation. And therefore, as you were saying before, um, if we can take the troublesome facts about consciousness of this kind or that, state consciousness or even worse, phenomenal consciousness, um, and we can explain them entirely in terms of mental representation, we're golden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't philosophical problems about mental representation. You bet there are, but they are what Chalmers would call easy problems as opposed to the hard problems that we're trying to deal with now. Mm -hmm. Now, Chalmers also thinks, uh, just to be clear, that state consciousness is an easy problem. Right. Um, so For him, when, phenomenal consciousness is the only hard problem yes, of consciousness. that's right. So, so when we descend to the comparatively accessible, humble level of state consciousness, um, we're back on easy avenue, <laughs> which is fine with me. Right. But, yeah, in, in fact, when uh, those of us like me and David Rosenthal, who uh, gave theories early on, and they didn't certainly didn't originate with us. Which I want to talk about as yeah, we hone in. Um, started giving theories of state consciousness. Mine, as you say, is a representational theory, as is David Rosenthal's, a different one. Um, uh, uh, hard problem merchants were openly contemptuous of us for just piddling around the easy problems. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. But why is there something what it's like, though? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
uh, here I can explain state consciousness. I think my explanation of state consciousness is pretty good. It's controversial. Of course, there are competing explanations and competing theories and so forth. But it's still pretty much business as usual. Um, it doesn't say anything about the hard problem. But why is it like something? Okay. Uh, just as long as we're clear, I wasn't trying to say anything about that. I was only talking about state consciousness. Right. And one, you can compare mental representation, just going back to mental representations, you can compare those just to normal representations just to kind of get your foot under the territory. Like a map represents something outside yeah. of itself, a city. Yeah. And in, in a similar way, a mental state can represent... Yeah. Uh, events that are occurring outside of the body. Oh, yeah. Cognitive scientists talk about mental maps, for example. Right. Uh, some mental representation is pictorial. Right. In that way. Now, there are big philosophical problems about that, and we must not pretend that there aren't, but they're still sort of business as usual. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're not the hard problem. Right. I agree with Chalmers and uh, other people who go on about the hard problem. Right. So, so that's the basic representationalist paradigm. And then there are other physicalist theories that will just try to directly explain consciousness in terms of neural states. They won't even go through all of that. Good luck with that. Which, yeah, seems just to be a dead end from my mind. Yeah, I agree. And if there, are, there are, of course... Why is it like something for you to have that blue experience? Oh, because all these neurons are firing. Yeah. Uh, no, that wasn't what I asked. <laughs> yeah. um, right, so I think we, we can put those theories aside and we'll focus on representationalism here. So there are different kinds of representationalism. There's higher-order representationalism and first-order representationalism. But before we get there, I just wanted to bring up one potential objection that someone might make to representationalist theories in general. And that's the idea that not all conscious states are intentional. Right? If you're going to explain consciousness in terms of, of intentionality, that would suggest that all conscious states are intentional. But it seems like there are some conscious states, one might think, that aren't about, there's that word, that aren't about anything, like free-floating anxiety, for example, or something like this. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to people who make these kinds of claims? I don't believe it. Uh, I follow Franz Brentano, who, who said that intentionality is the mark of the mental. And I think for any mental state I know about or have ever experienced or have ever encountered anyone who experienced, it does have intentional content. Sometimes the intentional content is not what's striking about it. For example, pain. Uh, suppose you have a pain. Um, an urgent pain, a burning pain, a terrible pain. And if somebody asks you, what does that pain represent? You might be tempted to say, represent? I don't care what it re doesn't represent. It's killing me. Um, <laughs> but what's it about? <laughs> yeah, what's it about? What do you mean what's it about? They, I mean, of course, what strikes you about it and what's important about it and what looms large for you about it is these affective properties and conative properties. It hurts. It makes you feel awful. You need to stop it, and so on and so on. Those are not representational properties, at least not the kind we're talking about. But as a matter of fact, pains do represent something. They represent damage in a part of your body. Right. And they, that's what they're for. 
Um, it's not all therefore. The reason pains have affective and conative properties in addition to their representational ones is that just knowing that there's damage doesn't make you fix it. The function of pain is not only to report the damage, but to make you fix it now. Right. <laughs> so pains have a, a double role in that way. Um, Free-floating anxiety, you mentioned. Yeah. I don't know if free-floating anxiety has a function or whether it's just a sort of aberration or epiphenomenon of something else, but it does have an intentional content. When you're anxious, you may not know what you're anxious about, and there may not be um, anything very specific you're anxious about. That's why they call it free-floating. Um, but... It's going something wrong, something impending. Yeah. Something gonna happen. Uh. It's, it's almost like about everything, almost. Yeah. Not one I suppose thing. it might be. I mean, you might be anxious because the whole cosmos hates you, right. <laughs> or the whole cosmos <laughs> has it in for you. So the the. Um, the intentional content may be very vague and diffuse and not be very important. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't cure anxiety by going out and telling the cosmos to be nicer. Right. Uh, but uh, I maintain that for what it's worth, free-floating anxiety does have a very vague intentional content. Um, right. Now, Buddhists tell us that there is such a thing as what they call pure consciousness. I've been reading up on this in the, with the paper I'm writing, actually. Ah, pure consciousness is supposed to be um, a conscious mental state that does not have any intentional content at all. That's the respect in which it's pure. Right, the intentional structure of experience just disappears. It just disappears. I just bought, that. what's this textbook yeah. I just brought? It's called Pure Consciousness. Oh. And it's literally a collection. Yeah, then you know more about it than I do. I just brought it. So I just, stuff I'm getting into. The Problem ah. of Pure Consciousness, by mm-hmm. Ro- edited by Robert Foreman. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sorry, keep going. I would need a lot of convincing. I do know people. Who's the guy, Jonathan Shear? He made be mentioned in your book there, who has made a lot of study of Eastern thought, Mm -hmm. and he has spent a lot of time in India uh, uh, with uh, uh, various kinds of practitioners of -of out-of-the-way transcendental states, meditative states, things like that, where you take yourself out of the normal run of everyday mentation and you get yourself into somewhat rarefied, abstract mental states, um, some of which may be this kind of pure consciousness. Nobody in this tradition says we go around having it all the time and everybody knows what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a very special kind of state that you can get into only through meditation, some, some kind of meditative process or, uh, or whatnot. So it may be that there is a counterexample to Brentano's thesis. It may be that there is a kind of mental state that has no intentional content, whatever. I'll reserve judgment on that. Right. And this also gets back to what we were talking about with respect to Ned Block. He's going to endorse the idea, he has this idea of mental paint or phenomenological overflow that I endorsed earlier where you can have conscious states that aren't representational or intentional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm using, I'm thinking about pure consciousness as it could potentially relate to the cognitive phenomenology 
debate. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's my gateway into that. But again, I'm opening up another door that I don't necessarily want to walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Right, so that was the objection that we just talked about was just an objection to all representationalist theories because all representationalist theories think that consciousness coincides with intentionality. Um, mm-hmm. So... Well, hold on. That, that's not quite true. Okay. Um, suppose, uh, for the sake of argument, that um, we have a mental state that itself has no intentional content. Suppose, I don't believe this, but suppose that elation, a mood, a really good mood, you're elated. Uh, Maybe for no even very good reason. You just feel great. And uh, this is just a mood. It doesn't have any intentional content, we may suppose. Um, You're elated. Now, according to higher-order theories of what makes a mental state a conscious state, um, it means that the subject is representing that state itself. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that the state has intentional content. Right. So the representational theory of what makes a mental state a conscious state isn't committed to Brentano's thesis. I see. I see. Okay. Well, that was going to be my next question. My next question. It is committed to the claim that any state you can be aware of is a state that you can represent. Right. Yes. Okay. So my next question was, what's the distinction between higher order representationalism, which you just briefly mentioned, and first order representationalism? Again, just slowly honing in on your thesis, which is a higher order view. I don't understand the first order views very well. Um, but um, Sorry. there is an idea that uh, Uriah Kriegel has, for example, that um, what makes a mental state a conscious state, in our sense, a state that you're aware of being in, is that the state represents itself. Right. It's not that another state represents it, which is what I think. Yeah. Um, well, hmm, I'd have to hear a lot more about that. There is also uh, the attention view, which is not actually a representational view. It is a competitor of my higher-order perception sort of view, according to which um, what makes a mental state a conscious state is just that you're attending to it where that doesn't entail representing it. But that's not a first-order representational view either. That's a third kind of view. Yeah. And when I think of the first order representational view, I'm thinking of something like Kriegel's view, as we just talked about. Yeah. When I was asking the question, I was thinking more of Ty and Dretzky's view, because I guess Kriegel used to consider his self-representationalism, which you just explained, Mm. as a first order view. But as we discussed recently, he's now considered that a higher order view. But that's just language. I can see how you might call it that. Yeah. Um, Well, Uh, Certainly, uh, as I just described it, namely the mental state represents itself, Mm -hmm. that's not a higher order view. It's just one mental state. uh, uh, It's it's, uh, uh, just that there isn't a second representational state that's representing it. It's representing itself. You don't need any second state. Right. That's the sense in which it's first order. Right. 
I feel like people who are listening might be confused. Yeah, right now. Uh, a lot of <laughs> professional philosophers are confused on this point, so I wouldn't blame anybody for being confused. So let's just get. I get confused myself. Yeah, <laughs> let's just get clear on what what is higher order representationalism. Not even distinguishing between the hop theory and the hot theory necessarily. Yet. Simply put, it's the idea that the mental state that is a conscious state counts as being a conscious state in that there's a second state that represents it. Mm -hmm. So a first order mental state is conscious when it's taken as the object of a distinct higher order mental state. That's right. And if I could, so you have- uh, the, the higher order part means just that the, the thing is a state about a state. Right, it's a state about a state. Yeah. Right. It's a meta state. Um, so you have, uh, this simple argument that you published in, I forget which journal, for higher order representationalism. Mm -hmm. I thought it might be helpful just to kind of briefly state that because I feel uh -huh. like it really clearly lays it out. Sure. So <clears throat> this is a Professor Lichen's simple argument for higher order representationalism. So it's uh, the first premise is a conscious state is a mental state whose subject is, who the subject is aware of being in. And this appeals to what some philosophers call the transitivity principle, which is the idea that just that. A conscious state is a state whose subject is in some way aware of being in it. That's a, that's a definition. Right. That's simply the definition of the phrase conscious state as we are using the term. That's a stipulative definition. Mm -hmm. And then again, going back to the distinction between unconscious and conscious mental states, that, uh, sep that, that elucidates that distinction. A conscious mental state is one you're aware of. Yeah. An unconscious state is one you're not aware of. Yes. Pretty simple. Uh, right, so that's premise one. Premise two, the of in premise one, aware of, is the of of intentionality. Yeah. When, one, you're a, when you're aware of X, you have a, a state of awareness directed upon X that is about X. Right. That has X as its content, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, like you just said, it's a mental state that's about another state, which is intentionality, aboutness. Yeah. Premise three, intentionality is representational. Mm -hmm. That's the whole representationalist program that we just spent a couple minutes discussing. Yep. Um, so therefore, awareness of a mental state is a representation of that state, which gets you to higher order theory. QED. Yeah, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty simple argument. Um, pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. And right, so I guess we'll, we'll discuss the first premise because you've kind of gone retracted on your hop theory, but uh, before we get there, there's a simple argument for higher order representationalism, which kind of brings together a lot of the threads we've been talking about. Um, what else? Right, so there are two, and now we're really starting to get towards your theory here. There are two main versions of higher order representational, re representationalism. There's the higher order thought theory and a higher order perception theory, which is, you're the most famous proponent of the higher order perception theory, and David Rosenthal, who you mentioned, is the most famous proponent of the higher order thought theory. And the basic difference is, uh, higher order thought theorists, they conceptualize the higher order mental state as being thought-like, whereas you conceptualize it as being kind of an inner sense perception-like. Yeah, they're, they're both representational theories. It's just that uh, we differ over which kind of representation is going on. Um, I say the representation is perception-like. Um, it's like having what Kant called an inner sense. It's not, that doesn't mean it is literally perception. It just means it has a lot in common with perception. Um, Rosenthal's view is that you don't need 
that assumption. Any kind of thought about the first order state is representation enough to make that a conscious state. What led you to hop theory? Why would you, or I guess, let me put that differently. Why do you reject higher order thought theory? Well, for a number of reasons. I actually have a paper on this called The Superiority of Hop to Hot. <laughs> and uh, I've, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one is, a this is a real cheap shot. I'm sure Rosenthal could uh, uh, resist it. But uh, it seems to me, just to start off with, that you only have thoughts about something you're already aware of. Mm. Um, so, I haven't considered that objection, I don't think. Yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, um, uh, Rosenthal is right that if I'm having thoughts about my own mental state, then I'm aware of my own mental state. But I, I think that's because in order to have the thoughts about it, you have to be aware of it. Right. It's not that having the thoughts about it constitute your becoming aware of it. You're aware of it first, yeah. and then you have a thought. So he's almost getting the order of explanation yeah. reversed. Yeah, that that's a simple objection to it. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, another uh, argument that I've used many times is that um, awareness of your own mental states is under voluntary control. Mm. The way that external world perception is. I can say, um, now bear with me and answer some of my questions. I'm the doctor and you're the patient. Um, what are you feeling in your left elbow right now? Um, anything interesting going on in your visual field? Um, you having any smell experiences? And you can, to answer those questions, you can voluntarily cast your attention, your internal attention around uh, inside you and um, uh, become aware of mental states that you were in but hadn't been aware of before. And it is a perception-like activity that lets you do that. Mm. Thoughts are not per se under voluntary control. Mm. I mean, of course, I can tell you to think about something mm -hmm. uh, and you can do it. But again, when you think about a thing I tell you to think about, it's because you're already aware of that thing as a potential object to think about. Mm -hmm. yeah, those are two arguments. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because yeah, thoughts just seem like they appear, whereas you do have at least more voluntary control over your perception. Yeah, yeah. I guess two other objections that I have here, which one is due to Alvin Goldman, the problem of the rock. Mm -hmm. Which the uh, you know when I have a thought about this is these are objections to higher order thought theory. We're still on that. Mm -hmm. When I have a thought about a rock. It's not true that the rock becomes conscious, so why would a mental state become conscious when I have a thought about a mental state? And you know, obviously there are responses to all these objections. You know, I have to say on that one, I have always been rock blind. Uh, I just don't get that one. I don't think it has a deep answer. Um, we just don't, I mean, we, we call mental states this is a superficial verbal point. We call mental states conscious in the relevant sense when we're aware of being in them. Um, we don't call rocks conscious when we're aware of the rock. I mean, we just don't. That's just the way the language works. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I don't think that, that doesn't strike me as a strong objection. Yeah, I don't see that that's a deep problem. Yeah. There are people 
uh, who call it the problem of the rock. Yeah, no, there's been, as you say, ink has been spilled over this. <laughs> yeah, why, you know, why, the language works that way. Why does the language work that way? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, uh, when you have freckles on your skin and you're aware of them by looking at your hand or wherever your freckles are, we don't call them conscious freckles either. <laughs> no, that's that's true. Um, well, we use the word conscious always in connection with the mind, and one way in which we use it is we call a mental state conscious when we're aware of being in it. That's because it's about the mind. Right. Freckles aren't about the mind. Rocks aren't about the mind. End of story, so far as I can see. Mm -hmm. But I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> I have no proper feeling. <laughs> Yeah, well, so I guess one more objection to hot theory, which we haven't mentioned, is that it, on some interpretations, the higher order thought theory precludes infants or non-human animals from being conscious because arguably infants and non-human animals don't have the conceptual sophistication right. to instantiate these higher order thoughts, yeah. whereas your higher order perception theory doesn't face that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thoughts are, I think, by definition, conceptual. Maybe not. I mean, I, I'm not sure what David Rosenthal, the, the emperor of hot, uh, thinks about that. I, I know he has had plenty to say about it. I just don't know offhand what his current view is. Um, uh, that's one way in which, on the face of things, um, Introspection is more like perception than it is like thought, because um, perception isn't conceptual, or at least not in the same way and to the same degree that uh, uh, thought is. That's not something of which I want to make a big deal. Um, one thing, though, is that, uh, as you know, there is a general objection to higher-order theories, hop as well as hot that higher-order representation is too sophisticated generally. Mm. Not just conceptually, it's just too much apparatus. Right, regardless of whether it's perception-like or thought-like. Yeah, Peter Carruthers has made that objection to wit, and, and he's, he's worried that lower animals then couldn't have conscious states. Isn't he himself a higher-order theorist, albeit a, dis, a dispositionalist as opposed to an actualist? He's gone back and forth. He's taken a number of different views over the years. Okay. Um, but um, what I want to say in response to that is, well, wait a minute. Um, how many creatures in the animal kingdom uh, are aware of their own mental states? We are, but how far down the phylogenetic scale does that go? Hmm. Do you think rabbits are aware of their own mental states as such? Hmm. Maybe they are. That's an empirical question. But if the higher order theory is correct, regardless of whether it's yours or Rosenthal's, they would have to be, assuming they're conscious. Uh, if they do have conscious states, then they would have to be internally representing those very states. Mm. Yeah. I uh, Now, Carruthers, when he made this original objection, um, was simply assuming that, for example, rabbits do have conscious states, but don't have that higher order representational capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see why 
he can assume that they do have conscious states because to assume that is to assume that they are aware of their own mental states. And I don't find it the least bit obvious that rabbits can do that. Uh, I thought you were saying it's obvious. I thought you were saying he was saying that it's obvious that rabbits are conscious. Yes. But it's also obvious that they're not not aware of their own mental states. So therefore, the higher order theory of consciousness has to be mistaken. Oh, I didn't think that's what he was saying. Okay, I just misunderstood you. Uh, I mean, rabbits are conscious in a different sense. They're conscious of their environment. Mm. That just means they perceive and respond mm-hmm. selectively to their environment. Mm. That's another sense of conscious. Okay. And rabbits are awake or asleep. They're conscious in that sense. Mm-hmm. But are they state conscious in the sense we've been talking about? That's right. not at all obvious. Right. I'm going to say, in keeping with my simple argument that you have graciously uh, expounded, um, uh, I'm going to say, suppose we find out in some way that rabbits really are state conscious, that they do have awareness of their own mental states. Mm-hmm. It's an empirical question. Maybe there could be evidence that would show that. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are. But then I'll say that's evidence that they do represent their own mental states. Right. Okay. My simple argument cuts in again. <clears throat> right. If they're aware of those states, they must be representing those states. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's turn towards hop theory now, because we've just been tearing apart higher order thought theory. Mm-hmm. So I guess let me give an objection or two to your theory and get your response. So one objection, and this is kind of an empirically based objection as well, is that unlike outer perception, there is no obvious distinct sense organ or scanning mechanism responsible for the higher order Mm -hmm. percepts Mm -hmm. Um, how what's your response to that so just like okay you're saying that there's this inner higher order inner sense thing that's very much like outer perception but it's inner perception Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem like there is something in the brain that we've identified that corresponds with that certainly not anything that is nice and modular like the visual system or the auditory system or the olfactory system Mm -hmm. it's certainly not like that Um, It's not modular. It's presumably distributed. It's not something which I would see if I took off the top of your skull and looked into your brain. Actually, there isn't much that I would see. I wouldn't see your visual system either, but I'm speaking metaphorically. Oh, I thought, I thought you were saying just because of my, I don't, there's nothing going on in there. No, no, Sorry. no, 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 nothing personal, Cody. Uh, but, um, uh, but here again, I, I revert a little bit to the simple argument. One thing we know, um, one thing that I think is completely uncontroversial to say about human beings is that we can be aware of our own mental states. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Uh, Granted, we're not doing that by having a modular uh, inner sense system the way we have a visual system or an auditory system. So I'm not saying there is literally internal perception. Right. That is internal literally perception. Right. No, of course not, because uh, uh, we associate perception with organs and uh, systems that process the deliverances of those organs and so forth. 
So pretty much that objection is attributing to you a position that you don't actually hold. You never claim that there was a distinct sense organ. No, but it would be fair for the opponent to ask me, and Rosenthal, of course, would ask me, um, well, if it's not like perception in those specific ways, in what are the ways in which it is like perception? You say it's quasi-perception rather than thought. Yeah, I do say it's quasi-perception rather than thought. Hmm. It is different from paradigm cases of external sense, like vision. Right. Um, uh, well, I don't know. That's partly an empirical question. Um, one of the ways in which it is like perception is that it is under voluntary control and it's governed in part by attention. Right. And that I take to be uncontroversial, as I said before. Yes, which brings me to your recent change of heart and then your recent change of heart back, right? So there is this inner scanning mechanism, which is governed by attention, as you say. Mm -hmm. And uh, recently you discovered that in the uh, cognitive science or whatnot, uh, attention doesn't necessarily require rep intentionality or representation, which made you kind of retract the, your position, the higher mm -hmm. order perception theory. So it wouldn't even really be a representationalist theory on that. That's right. So could you, could you expand on that? Yeah. Uh, well, I always thought, and I, I have to mention here, if we're talking about Hop, that, that my great progenitor here is David Armstrong, the late uh, D.M. Armstrong, who defended um, inner sense or Hop theory um, of conscious states or state consciousness. Um, starting in the mid-60s and defended him very well. I just swiped the theory from him. I didn't invent it. I've just been defending his view all these years. And he and I both thought that inner sense was more or less interchangeable. It was a kind of a attention, a kind of attending. And I always used... Um, inner sense and internal attention interchangeably. I always thought it was an attention phenomenon, but I had always sort of tacitly assumed that there was still um, a dedicated internal attention mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, if we don't want to be a little highfalutin and misleading to call it an internal monitor. Um, so I tended not to use that language, although I've been correctly quoted as using it sometimes. Um, Armstrong used it. Um, but I'm saying, look, it's, it's just an attention mechanism. But I always did tend to think of it as a dedicated one. And then around 2008, um, I said, well, wait a minute, why does it have to be dedicated? You know, the idea of a dedicated internal scanner or something like that is what prejudices some people against HOP. And uh, with some reason, because then they would look for it in the brain and they wouldn't see anything that looks much like one of those. Right. So I said, well, look, um, there's no reason to think that it's a dedicated internal attention mechanism. I said, it's just ordinary attention. I attend to my own mental states in the same way as I attend to the vase of flowers on the table or my wife's voice in the next room or anything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, good. Well, that frees us from one source of displeasure with Hop. Okay. But along came uh, my 
PhD student, Wesley Sore, who knows a great deal more neuroscience than I do, and who pointed out to me that, uh, as a matter of fact, no going neurological theory of attention regards attention as an intentional state at all. I always thought that, and I think practically any philosopher thinks this, I always thought that to attend to something is intentional. It's a kind of representation. Right. And uh, Wesley pointed out to me that no neuroscientist thinks that. I said, they don't? He said, no. Attention is universally thought of as just the heightening of a representation that's already there. Mm. So to attend to the vase of flowers, you have an ordinary representation of the vase of flowers, and to attend to the vase is just to strengthen or heighten or otherwise modulate that representation, usually in terms of greater neural connectivity Mm -hmm. and whatnot. I said, oh, so... On that view, to attend to one of my own mental states is not to represent that state. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's just to heighten that state in some neural connectivity kind of way. At any rate, um, internal monitoring or inner sense, as Armstrong and I always conceived it, is not the same thing as attending. Mm. We always thought attending was just another word for the same thing, and it's not. Right. Sorry is right about that. So we published a paper in 2014 uh, making this point that no, those are two different theories. There's the higher order perception or inner sense view, and there's the attention view. The attention view isn't representational at all, mm-hmm. because attending is not per se representing. Okay, so my question is, what on the attention view, what precisely is the relationship between the first order mental state and the higher order mental state, if not representation? Right? You say it's this heightening. Is it acquaintance? Uh, on the acquaintance? attention view, there isn't any higher order mental state. Um, to attend to the first order mental state is just to heighten or strengthen or modulate somehow modulate uh, that state. Okay. I thought there was a higher order state that was doing that modulation. That is um, one, I, I, I in the end think there has to be, and that's one reason I am going back to hop. Okay. Wesley Perfect. doesn't know this yet. Wesley, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have emailed you uh, to warn you. But I'm not, I should emphasize, I'm not going back on what we said in that 2014 paper. Wesley was right. The uh, uh, higher order perception or inner sense view is not the attention view. The yeah. attention view is a different view. And so this, at, at the end of the paper, we just left it and said, look, these are competitors. Okay. So then, And here are some advantages of the attention view. Right. So and I, I still agree with all that. I'm not taking any of that back. Mm-hmm. It's just that now I think I have a paper going on this. I'll show it to you, the draft, Wesley. I really will. Uh, um, I, I think I can now list some advantages that the more traditional hop view does have over the attention view. Okay. Um, uh, what are some of those? Uh, uh, well, here's one that's not. 
uh, I can no longer make the voluntary control argument because attention is under voluntary control. Mm. So higher order perception, if it exists, is under voluntary control, so is attention. The voluntary control argument doesn't decide between those two things. Okay. What does decide between them? Well, I think there are a bunch of things. Um, one is the one you just mentioned, that if attention to something is a heightening of a representation you already have of that thing, then the natural idea of awareness of your own mental states would be to be representing one of, the, uh, one of your own mental states and heighten that representation. Oh, okay. Uh, I think you're right. And that is a higher order view. Wesley and I actually addressed that in our paper. Okay. And we made a reply to it that I think was adequate for my purposes. I won't go into it now because that would take us into a lot of detail. Um, I think our reply was reasonable, but um, I'm not completely convinced by it. And I now think the more natural thing uh, would be to say, yeah, attention is the heightening of a representation that you already have. And that applies within the mind, too. Okay. Um, another reason is, uh, or another I reason to, per to prefer the hop view is that, of course, anyone agrees that there is some kind of representation of our own mental states because, as Rosenthal emphasizes, we can have thoughts about them. We can ask questions about them. Yeah. Uh, we form beliefs about them. Yeah. Um, we <laughs> may have very firm beliefs about them. So it's that, not that is a higher order representation. Yeah, it's not a question of whether there are higher order representations. Of course there are, and I'm inclined to think this isn't decisive. Um, one of the ways in which we're able to have, um, let's say, we're uh, able to form an immediate belief about a mental state that we're in, such as "Gad, this is a terrible pain," or Ouch! I have a sudden pain in my elbow. Um, that, word, that higher order representation comes pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is uncontroversially a higher order representation, a thought or a belief, yeah. um, comes immediately. Mm -hmm. And one obvious explanation of that is that we had a higher order perception that immediately gives rise to belief, just as external perception immediately gives rise to belief. Mm. I see the vase of flowers, and I immediately thereby believe that there's a vase of flowers. Right. Um, now, that's not decisive. Uh, a proponent of the attention view could get around that. But it's one of the considerations that makes me go back to hop. I see. Right, so you're oh, not... Hop, will you take me back? <laughs> I've been bad. I've been a bad boy. <laughs> it was just last semester that you said you're done with that. You're like, I, ah, I don't. I don't accept that anymore. I know. It's a recent development. I know. Um, but when I said I was done with it, I I never meant I was sure it was false. I I, I meant that you um, don't explicitly endorse it. Well, I, I meant that I had to be neutral as between Hop and the attention view. I had never realized that they were different. Right. That they were competitors. I thought they were the same view. Yeah. They are not. Yeah. That's, that's what Sare convinced me of and what we showed in our paper. 
And you're taking elements of the intent of the attention view and retaining those elements and you going back to hop, right? Like you still uh, agree with, like you said, you still agree with everything that you said regarding attention in that 2014 paper. Yeah. Um, it's just that there needs to be this higher order state, which mm-hmm. represents the first order one in order to yeah. modify or heighten. That's right. There's another reason too, and I, I'll just mention this because it's important that people be aware of it. Um, there is now a big literature on uh, the question of consciousness without attention. Um, mm. There is an assumption that many people have made, and it's not just an assumption, there is empirical evidence for it, uh, uh, that you can be conscious of something only if you have at least a tiny bit attended to it. But that is now disputed. This, well, I think this is where I was going with Bloch's notion of phenomenological overflow, ah, which I which I mentioned. Could be. Because, yeah. yeah. The, there is now a literature. There's a nice survey article by Carolyn Dicey Jennings uh, on it that I've just been reading. Um, uh, there is now a literature that says, no, there can be consciousness of something with no attention at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a completely empirical issue. Mm-hmm. But if it's true that there can be consciousness of X with no attention whatever to X, that refutes the attention view of state consciousness. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't a prima facie example of consciousness without attention be the absent-minded one? Again, there might be some attention still, but you're still one could argue that you're still con- you're still conscious of the stop sign in some phenomenal way, but even you're if it's on- it. Yeah. Even, yeah, even if it's on the, your peripheral, yeah. Yeah. but you're, you're, the spotlight of attention isn't directed upon it. That's right. You could take um, the, uh, the truck driver, the long-distance truck driver on automatic pilot, which, by the way, was a creation of Armstrong. So he thought of this famous example oh, really? years ago. Um, the long-distance tri- truck driver driving on automatic pilot stops at the stop sign, even though um, he, he was a he in Armstrong's uh, original story. Um, is not at all aware of seeing the stop sign. You could use the same example. uh, uh, You're absolutely right about that. You could use the same example uh, uh, and put forward as an example of consciousness with no attention whatever. Now, the consciousness in question is consciousness of the stop sign. We're not talking about state consciousness here. Yeah. uh, but somebody may say, uh, I don't know this literature yet, I'm just beginning to read in it, um, the long-distance truck driver is a case of consciousness of the stop sign with no attention whatever to the yeah. stop sign. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and if there is consciousness of X with no attention whatever to X, um, then state consciousness can't be just attention. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, all right. I think I got one more question here. Then maybe we can end. We've been going for a while. Thank you for doing this. The last question. My pleasure. The last question is on AI consciousness. So looking towards the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your perspective? And we briefly talked about this. You did a presentation for the Consciousness Club on this. Mm-hmm. But what is your perspective on AI consciousness? Talking about phenomenal consciousness now. Do you think it's possible for artificial general intelligence systems that we may create in the future to be phenomenally conscious, for there to be something it's like to be a machine? 
you know that I do. I, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> you, you also know that I'm afraid to open my mouth on any topic of this sort on the UConn campus because one of our colleagues, Susan Schneider, is the world's leading authority on all such futuristic issues <laughs> about machine consciousness and whatnot. And uh, I'm. But you're one of the world's leading authorities on consciousness. Yeah, but, uh, well, as you know, I, I do think that in principle, um, uh, AI machines could be conscious in any sense we can, and uh, that includes phenomenal consciousness. Um, I'll say why in a moment, um, but I have to emphasize that when I say that, I'm talking a gigantic idealization. Mm -hmm. um, it may be that this couldn't possibly happen in real life because, after all, AI projects are done on great big digital computers. And it may be that in order to get an AI program to even approximate the complexity of what goes on in a human brain, it would have to be bigger than the solar system or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about an AI mm. uh, device that is miniaturized and detailized to an almost unimaginable degree. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not talking about real life. Right. Now, there are some people, and Daniel Dennett is one of them, um, who thinks, no problem. But that's <laughs> because, course. as we have discussed, Dennett does not take phenomenal conscious seriously, consciousness seriously. He doesn't really believe that there is any such thing. He doesn't really believe that there is any hard problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, if you do, as I do, then it's a much more uh, ambitious um, thing to say, to suppose that machines could do it. And my first uh, answer, as I said, is that in real life, could machines do it? No, I don't think so, because uh, I, uh, I don't think you could ever get machines idealized and miniaturized. And okay. so, um, so just, just the hardware. So you're saying, yeah, it's in principle possible, but yeah. it might be technologically yeah. impossible. I think it's probably technologically permanently impossible, although there are plenty of people, especially in the AI community, who would come after me and try to kill me for saying that. Yep. But um, um, that that's just my uh, personal opinion based on no very good evidence and certainly no expertise in AI. And Susan might want to correct me. but. Uh, that wasn't our real issue. Our real issue was if we do that gigantic idealization and suppose that an AI um, uh, project can at least um, imitate all the things that human beings can do about perception and about um, uh, suiting perception to the environment and about uh, being able to answer detailed questions, being able to simulate a fully functioning human being. Right. If we could get a machine, if we technologically could get a machine that did that, and if it said all the exact same things, then, of course, the issue is, is that machine a zombie? 
Right. Um, there are people who would hold that it is. Um, some people hold that um, real mentation and real consciousness and certainly phenomenal consciousness in particular requires biological wetware. Right. There's something about carbon substrates yes. that consciousness is tied to. That's right. That's right. right. Now, at that point, as you know, because you've heard me give this speech, um, at that point, I say, well, I'll have to hear the argument. I will have to hear why that's relevant. Mm -hmm. Why is it relevant that we're made of carbon? Yeah. So there's I, some I secret sauce in carbon? Yeah. Secret well, consciousness exactly. Sauce? Well put. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Special sauce. Well, you know, I, I don't think being made of carbon has anything to do with the metal. Yeah. Maybe it does, but you'd have to show me what. Right. Um, and uh, uh, so I entertain arguments, um, uh, uh, and there are arguments in the literature for saying that uh, a mere machine, uh, a computer uh, or a digital device, or maybe not even digital, maybe an analog device. Anyway, a machine that somebody has made in the laboratory mm -hmm. um, couldn't be phenomenally conscious in the way we are. One line of um, reasoning that uh, goes back to the late John Hoagland, uh, Doug Long, uh, Paul Ziff used to say this, is that um, the machines don't have interests hmm. of their own. Mm -hmm. And they want to say that you have to have biological interests um, okay. to have mentation like ours, including an especially phenomenal consciousness. Um, you know who believes that? Four-year-olds. <laughs> Absolutely true. Um, I won't go into this. I, I have actually run little workshops with four-year-olds when really? my daughter was in nursery school. Um, and four-year-olds uh, do not take seriously the idea that a computer can have mental states at all. Huh. And the reason, if you press them, they say it's not alive. It's not alive. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is certainly something to that. Paul Ziff, in a very famous paper called The Feelings of Robots, said robots can't have feelings because they're not alive. Right. Doesn't mean you have to have carbon. Right, but being alive is yeah. a necessary condition. You have to be a, an organism that has uh, environment-oriented interests in a way that computers don't. It's interesting because uh, the <clears throat> physicist from MIT, Max Tegmark, just came out with a book called Life 3.0 in which he redefines the concept of being alive. So according to his definition of what it means to be alive, AIs could be alive. Yeah. Just interesting. Yeah. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of issues here. Um, I am not persuaded um, because I don't offhand see why you have to have interests in the biological sense yeah. to have phenomenally conscious states. I think phenomenally conscious states are just a matter ultimately of information processing and computers do that. Right. Um, that's what I think. But I'm, I mentioned that there is this, uh, um, uh, this anti AI line that is not stupid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, I, I would have to hear a better argument, but maybe there will be improved arguments. Yeah, I'm not really sure. That sounds plausible to me. I'm not really sure where I stand on the issue right now. One worry that I have is 
will lose sight of the problem, will create AGIs that pass the touring test mm -hmm. with flying colors. They speak like us, behave like us, and we will inevitably treat them as if they're conscious, oh, yeah. regardless of whether they are. Yes. So we could be being, we could be psychologically duped by unconscious beings that yeah. are behaviorally indistinguishable from us. Yeah, you made that point at my talk that that you mentioned. That um, I think it's a real, I think it's a real concern. Yeah, that. Um, yeah, there's no denying that these flawless human simulators, assuming there ever could be one, um, uh, would um, uh, would dupe us. Um, now, I wanted to say, and this is what you resisted on that occasion, um, I wanted to say, look, uh, uh, it would just be um, psychologically impossible not to suppose that this uh, human simulator was was having thoughts and feelings and for that matter phenomenal consciousness like that it seemed to be I mean you you couldn't take that seriously for a second yeah to which you responded appropriately um, that just means that you're duped um, I yeah. mean yeah it's conceded all around that you would be completely unable um, <laughs> not to believe that this thing had a mind of course you would be but uh, that doesn't show anything, given the hypothesis. Right. That just means you'd be duped. Mm. Of course we're hardwired to respond to things that act like that. Yeah. If it seems to be in pain, we're going to go pat it and hug it and <laughs> bind, it up, bind up its wounds. Well, of course we are. We're hardwired to do that. Um, but that's not evidence. Yeah. I think it is evidence, but there is room for... Disagreement. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, that's why I think all this stuff is really practically important because uh, I was reading this paper the other day and AI experts estimate the probability of producing these AGIs that are can pass the touring test. Yeah. Um, I forget the, the precise numbers, but it's like mm -hmm. the 70% consensus that we're going to achieve this by 20 75 or something like that. I bow to our colleague Susan on all such yeah. issues. She knows this stuff. Yep. Um, all right. That's all I got. Thank you very much. This has been very enlightening for me. Thank you, Cody. I love to talk about this stuff. Until next time. And thanks for your extremely intelligent questions. <laughs>